happy time. Someone say amen to that. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to welcome you to our service today. Good morning to the folks across the street at the video venue and all you folks joining us online. If you got a Bible, I want you to grab it and go with me to the Old Testament book of Jonah. And when you get to the Old Testament book of Jonah, I want you to find chapter 4. And this weekend, we're going to conclude a special three-week series called Jonah, Running from God. My son Andrew and I have written this together, and I preached the first weekend, he preached last weekend, and I'm going to finish this up today. You know, as we begin uh, this morning, I'll just say I don't know anyone who doesn't like a story with a happy ending. We love it when the good guy wins. We love it when the underdog comes out on top. And so far, as we've made our way through the story of Jonah, in the first three chapters, it looks like that's what's going to happen in this story. It's going to have a happy ending. You know how the story goes. I'm going to just uh, assume this morning, even if you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, that most of the folks that are here today at least have some level of familiarity with the story of Jonah. God speaks to Jonah one day. He said, I want you to go and preach to the great city of Nineveh because its wickedness has come up against me. And Jonah didn't want any part of that. And so he went down to the port city of Joppa, and he bought a fare on a boat that was going the exact opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. Now, from a geographical standpoint, if Jonah would have made it all the way from Joppa to Tarshish, he would have been successful in putting 2,500 miles between him and where it was that God wanted him to go. That's just how dead set he was against doing what God wanted him to do. But you know what happened next. God acted in a supernatural way, and while Jonah was on that ship headed for Tarshish, a storm came that just could not be avoided. Everybody's lives were in danger, and in the end, the only thing they could do to save themselves was to throw Jonah overboard. That's what they did, and at that point, God, he acted supernaturally again, and he sent a great fish to swallow Jonah, and the Bible says that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish. And he prayed while he was in there, and God showed his mercy to him, and that fish in my NIV Bible says vomited Jonah up on the shore. I, how many times do you get to use the word vomited in a sermon? That's an awesome thing right there in and of itself. I'm going to try to throw that in as many times as I can today. So that fish vomited, there's number two, that Jonah up on the shore, and God gave him the same call now, and Jonah went to the great city of Nineveh, and he preached the, one of the, listen, he preached one of the greatest sermons in the history of the world, and here's the amazing thing about it. It was eight words long. Eight words long. One of the greatest sermons in the history of the world. What, how would it be to come to church and hear an eight-word sermon? Just think about it, because it's never going to happen. <laughs> but it was powerful. This is, this is the sermon. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. <sighs> How powerful is that? <laughs> Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. But I said it's one of the greatest sermons in the history of the world because it led to a citywide revival in Nineveh. The results were incredible because on hearing those words, those eight words, it says in the Scriptures that the people of Nineveh believed in God. In fact, Nineveh chapter 3 and verse 5 says the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, everyone say all of them, all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which is evidence of their humility and their repentance before God. And there's no doubt to me that it was genuine repentance. 
In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, the king says, this is the king of Nineveh now, this was his words to the people, he said, let everyone call urgently on God, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Now, that's a classic definition of repentance, let them give up, or in other words, let them turn away, which is what repentance means, from their evil ways and from violence. This was an incredibly powerful message that Jonah delivered in eight words. And when God saw that repentance and that response, he had compassion on the people and he did not bring the destruction he had threatened. What an incredible story, right? Incredible story. You would think so. You would think everyone there, including Jonah, would be absolutely overwhelmed with incredible joy and thanksgiving at the mercy of God. But if we thought that, we would be wrong. And that brings us to Jonah chapter 4. So if you got those Bibles out and open to Jonah chapter 4, I'm going to invite you to stand with me right where you are like we always do in reverence and respect for God's Word. And uh, we're going to read Jonah chapter 4 together, wherever we are, across the street, joining us online. Uh, it's only 11 verses, so it'll take just a moment, but uh, there's, some great, there's a great, great lesson to be learned here in Jonah chapter 4. This is what it says, but Jonah, this is remember now after God relented and did not send destruction on the city of Nineveh, it says, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun arose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? All right, there it is. You can be seated. We ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Let's just jump right in. There are some things I want you to understand from Jonah chapter 4 so that we can learn a great lesson together. And so if you're taking notes, I'm going to make it real simple this morning. Write down next to number one, the first thing we want to talk about, and we're just going to call that an objection. Write down the words, an objection. If we look back at Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1, this is how it begins, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Now, that's the way it reads in my New International Version Bible that I always bring to the pulpit every week. I actually like the way this reads better in the New Living Translation. In the NLT, it reads like this, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. What's the change of plans that he's talking about? Well, it's the fact that God was no longer going to destroy the people and the city of Nineveh. This made Jonah angry. Why? Well, I don't know if you were here or not a couple of weeks ago when we began this story, but I'm going to go back to something that I told you in the very beginning. 
Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with going to Nineveh because the people in Nineveh were incredibly, incredibly wicked. In fact, I'm not going to take the time to go into great detail, but I don't even know if I can find words enough to describe the level of their depravity and the level of their wickedness. They were wicked on steroids. This is a historical fact. So he didn't want to go to them because he didn't care about them, and because he didn't care about them, he didn't think God should care about them. In fact, I don't think Jonah even wanted to serve a God who would care about people as wicked as Nineveh. In the text, it says in the original language of the Hebrew that when he looked at the people of Nineveh, he saw them as a great evil. That's the literal translation for how Jonah felt about these people in this city. He saw them as a great evil. And so, when God relented from sending destruction upon them, it sent Jonah into a tailspin and created a really bad attitude. And so, what he does is he prays. And you see his prayer in verses 2 and 3. Now, look at the first part of his prayer again in verse 2. In verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home. Now, pause right there and everybody look up at me. How many of you think it's a good idea to ever begin a prayer by saying to God, listen, God, I told you so. (laughs) That just doesn't sound smart to me to begin a prayer to the sovereign, omniscient God of the universe and say, listen, God, you get right, you get it right most of the time, but like I said, you really blew it this time. But that's basically, in essence, the way Jonah began this prayer. So he said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. All right, that's how the prayer began. Now, let me ask you a question. Having read that first part of his prayer and having kind of recap the entire story of the book of Jonah. Let me ask you this question. Is there anyone else here this morning that sees anything hypocritical about Jonah's attitude at this point? And here's why I asked the question. It, it, it's clear to me in this story that Jonah is absolutely a-okay with God's mercy when he's the recipient, but when it's the people of Nineveh, not so much. Isn't that clear? And that is the absolute height of hypocrisy. When God rescues Jonah, for example, from the belly of a great fish, he's okay with that. But when he chooses to rescue the people of Nineveh from complete destruction, that's another story altogether. God, I want you to extend me mercy when I need it, but I don't think everyone deserves to experience your mercy. I think it's actually pretty amazing that Jonah was willing to be honest about this because I have a feeling that a lot of people feel this way. They're just not willing to say it out loud. But let me ask you a question, okay? I mean, let's just be honest, okay? I'm going to be honest with you today. I'm going to tell a story of myself here in a few minutes. You be honest with me. Let's just be honest. Have you ever in your life, even for a second, on some limited level, been guilty of looking at someone and thinking they don't deserve the love and the mercy and the grace of God as much as you do? Or I could see how God could, could, could pour out His mercy and His love over here because these, in, these are good people. But those people, I don't know. I've got a little bit of a question about those people. We're all guilty of that at times on different levels. Listen to this statement I came across while I was writing this sermon. I'll put it up on the screen so you can read it. You can tell you have made God in your image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. 
Now, I laughed when I read that too. I mean, I kind of chuckled to myself when I read that, but man, there's a kind of a painful truth behind that, isn't there? Because that's, that's, sadly, that's a little bit the way all of us are. You know, the Bible says that God has made us a man in his own image, but as we go through our lives, it's easy for us to flip that around and make God in our own image, and then that statement comes into play. You can tell you've made God in your image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. And the application for that is very real here in the story of Jonah because I guarantee it, Jonah didn't care a single thing about the people of Nineveh. And because of that, he didn't think God should care about them. I mean, Jonah, one of these people, he was good with God sending these people straight to hell. I mean, pull, pull the lever, let the trap door open, let them just go straight to hell, do whatever you got to do because they're not worth saving. He got upset when God chose to save them. And when that happened, Jonah revealed just how self-absorbed he was. The second part of his prayer is found in verse 3. He says, now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Talk about a bad attitude. And, you know, and I see more irony in that statement as well, especially when I step back from it and I think about the entire story of Jonah. Because you think in, in Jonah chapter 2, when he was swallowed by a great fish, he was in the belly of a whale three days and three nights. He knew he was going to die. What did he do? He called out to God to help him live. When he was in the belly of the great fish, when he was afraid of dying, he called out to God basically and said, Lord, let me live. But now when he goes to Nineveh and has what is arguably the greatest personal and professional success of his entire life, a single eight-word sermon led to an entire citywide revival, when he should be happy about that, what does he pray? He prays, Lord, let me die. When he's about to die, he says, Lord, let me live. When he should be living high on the hog because of all the success, he says, Lord, I want to die. I mean, this guy was messed up. There's a lot of conflict here in his life. So how, here's the deal. How are we to understand this? I mean, how are you, how are you and me today as we, we got our Bibles open to Jonah chapter 4, we're studying the Bible together. How are we to understand it? How are we to explain this part of the story? Well, I would just tell you this, when, and, and, and we're also familiar with the story of Jonah. I mean, we heard it dozens and dozens of times, read it dozens and dozens of times. And when the story of Jonah first begins, my big question would be, what's God going to do about the people of Nineveh? Because they were so wicked and they were so bad. They were so wicked and they were so bad. In fact, God reveals that in, in the very first verse, I think, of Jonah. It said, what's it say? It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. I mean, that's from God. So in the beginning, our question is, what's God going to do about the people of Nineveh? But now that I'm at the end of the story, you know what I feel like my question should be? What's God going to do about Jonah? Let me, let me rephrase it, make it more personal. What's God going to do about smug, arrogant, self-centered believers who look down on everyone that's not the same as they are? And that kind of throws all of us in the mix, at least maybe at times. Right down next to number two. Okay, number one was an objection. Let's move along in the story. Right down next to number two, the words an object lesson, an object lesson, because God, God knows what he's going to do. God knows what he needs to do. And so, uh, Jonas ticked off because God doesn't destroy the people in the city of Nineveh. He prays this selfish prayer in verses 2 and 3, and God responds to the prayer in verse 4. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? 
God responds to the prayer. Can you imagine having that level of communication with God, that level of personal communication with God? God says, have you any right to be angry? And Jonah doesn't reply, and so God sets things in motion by providing an object lesson for Jonah that unfolds in three parts. Pick it up in verse 5. I know we read this a minute ago, but this is so important. Let's read it again. Jonah went out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. It sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. You know, maybe Jonah really thought, well, you know, maybe God heard what I said, realized he made a mistake. I'm just going to sit here and wait for the fireworks, you know. And he had a good viewing place. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease to ease his comfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. So Jonah's happy with God when God makes Jonah happy. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, and God, then God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So God, when Jonah doesn't reply to his question, do you have any right to be angry, he provides this object lesson that unfolds in three parts. God provides a vine, God provides a worm to destroy the vine, and God provides a scorching east wind to make life rough for Jonah. And when that vine died and when the sun, along with that scorching east wind, caused Jonah to grow faint, Jonah just repeated what he had said earlier, it'd be better for me to die than to live. But note God's response. Pick it back up in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Now, here's the point that God is trying to make with Jonah, and I'm going to put it in my own words. Jonah, you care about this vine that you didn't have anything to do with. You care about this vine that was here one day, just one day, and gone the next. Don't you think I should care as the creator of all things? Don't you think I should care about the more than 123 people in Nineveh who are living in spiritual ignorance? And that, by the way, is what that phrase meant when he said, who don't know their right hand from their left. It means they're living in spiritual ignorance. They may know a lot about pagan gods, little g gods, but they don't know anything about me, the one true God. They don't even know their right hand from their left. They don't even know that they don't know. And I read that, and it reminds me of how easy it is sometimes for us to forget how important people, all people, everyone say all people, all people are to God. Everyone matters to God. Absolutely everyone we forget about that sometimes because people can be difficult. I was reading an article the other day. It was an online article from a ministry site that I visit sometimes. So it was specifically for pastors. It was specifically for church leaders. And I, I don't remember the exact title of the article, but it was something like 10 things church leaders need to stop saying. And here's the one that really stood out to me the most. Here's something that, that church leaders like me should stop saying. Um, my job would be easier if it weren't for people. I mean, I wouldn't have a job if it weren't for people. But I need to stop saying, not that I would ever say this, my job would be easier if it weren't for people. But, you know, if someone came up to me after service and asked me, what's the best thing about ministry? I mean, if you ask the standing pastor, they would probably, at least on some level, say, in the first few answers, they would say, people. People make ministry great. 
seeing the way God works in people's lives, seeing the way God transforms and changes people, seeing the way God cares for people. And we could describe it in a number of different ways. But if someone else came up and said, what's the worst thing about ministry? If I was going to be honest, I might be tempted to say just the same thing, people. Because people can be difficult. People can be offensive and people can be insensitive and people can be you can say a whole lot of different words but God loves people all people and because God loves people all people if we're going to say that we're Christians then we have this responsibility and obligation to love all people as well Jonah didn't just not want to go to the city of Nineveh he didn't care about the people of Nineveh. He couldn't stand the people of Nineveh. In an honest moment, he probably would have said, I hate the people of Nineveh, and because of that, I just want God to destroy them. That's what he would have said. But before we beat him up any longer, let's just acknowledge that there can be moments like that for all of us in our lives with certain people because people can be difficult. You know, one of the best things we do every week here at Mount Pleasant is we have a Uh, what we call Impact Thursday and Impact Saturday back here in the Impact Center. Impact Thursday, we have a morning session, an afternoon session, and an evening session where folks come to us who are in need of some basic necessities in life, food and clothing. But beyond that, they also have a need for someone to love and care about them and give them some spiritual nourishment, even if they don't recognize that in the moment. We do that every Saturday morning as well. And every week, somewhere four to 500 people come or more come Uh, to be a part of that. And so one of the first things we do uh, when they come is we open up the scriptures to them and we share the truth of God's word with them. And so I I don't do it every single week, but I try to do it as often as I can, especially on Thursdays. And so a couple of weeks ago, before we were going to begin this Jonah series, I was talking to Andrew and I said, Andrew, I'm going to go over on the first uh, Thursday of the, or the Thursday of the first week. And I'm going to, I'm going to take my message from chapter one. I'm going to put together an abbreviated message to share with those people. Then the next weekend, I'm going to be gone because I, Sandy and I went to Nashville so that we, I could perform a wedding for one of my nephews who lives there. I said, I'm going to be gone, but you go the second week and you, oh, you do a, uh, abbreviated message that, uh, from chapters two and three from what you're going to deliver in church. And you do that. And then when I get back, I'll go over and I'll do an abbreviated message from chapter four. And that was our plan. So I went over in the first week and I, I had my message prepared from Jonah chapter one and I got in there and I've gone over a lot and I've gotten to know those people. And listen, those people, the, the vast majority, and by the way, I, I just want to go on record saying that I just am, I am crazy about all of you folks who volunteer at the Impact Center. You do an, a remarkable job. I'm, it means so much to me to see you over there serving so selflessly every week. I applaud you and we need some more people to serve. But, but I went over there, and I've gotten to know some of those people, and they hug my neck, and they tell me that they love me. They're so kind. And, and when I get up to speak to them, that, you know, I mean, I'm, they're engaged with me, almost all of them, not all of them, though. And there's this one woman that comes every week, a young woman. She sits to my left where I'm at, and she never listens to a single word I say. And, and, I'm, and I'm just not imagining that. I've been doing this long enough to know when you're listening or not, okay? And she doesn't. And most of the time, she sits there with her phone just like this the whole time. I mean, she doesn't even, she didn't even look up at me. Nothing. And now, you know, I'm pretty good sometimes, but <laughs> nothing, nothing, ever, never have noticed one single time when she was engaged. And I shared my, my message from Jonah chapter one that week, and I went back to my business. And then the next Thursday, uh, Sandy and I left early to go to... Um, um, 
Nashville because they were having the rehearsal and the rehearsal dinner that night and there were some things that we needed to do to help. And I'm driving down 65 South. You've all done it. We've all driven down 65 South on my way to Louisville. And, it, and it's time for Impact Thursday. And I start thinking about Impact Thursday. And I start praying for Impact Thursday. And then I start thinking about that woman. The longer I thought about it, the more angry I got. Seriously. I'm going to tell you about my bad side here. I, mean, I started to get angry. And I thought to myself, how disrespectful can somebody be? You know, I mean, I'm glad that, I'm glad that everybody comes, but I mean, how, who, can't, who can't spend 10 minutes listening to somebody trying to share some truth that can make a difference in life? This is the way my mind was going. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And after a while, I thought, well, I'm going to develop a plan. When I go back next Thursday, I'm going to go early, and I'm going to go in, and I'm going to sit down right next to her. <laughs> I'm going to sit right down next to her, and I'm going to ask her what her name is, and then I'm going to, I'm going to engage her in conversation, and I'm going to ask her, why don't you ever listen to anything that I have to say? I'm going to ask her about her life of faith, if she has one, if she, ever been to, if she has a church background or anything like that. I mean, I'm just going to press the issue. I'm going to be aggressive. I thought about all these things. So Thursday comes around, and I get my message, and I go in and, and, uh, to do my message, and I go in a little bit early, and there she is sitting in the same place she always sits, and you know what? I didn't do nothing. <laughs> I didn't do a thing. Because when it was all said and done, I think the Holy Spirit just brought conviction out of my heart that I needed to just be happy that she was there. And I needed to remind myself that what's happening on Impact Thursday is not about me, it's about God. So I just shared my message. I left that part out of my message. But I just shared my message, message, and I'm looking forward to seeing her next week. But how do you love people and care about people and go to people and reach out to people the way the Bible instructs us to, the way God wanted Jonah to do with the people of Nineveh when people are so difficult? How do you do it? Well, I think we have to understand some fundamental things. I only have time to talk about two of them real quickly. I'm going to do it real quickly. I think the first thing we all have to understand, and this is, what, this is what I was convicted of this last week because of my bad attitude, is we have to understand, number one, write this down, we're all sinners. How many of you know that's true? We're all sinners. I'm tempted to have a bad attitude about people sometimes when I look at them as sinners and I fail to remember that I'm one too. You ever been there? But we're all sinners, Every one of us. Now, somebody's sin might be different than mine, but it doesn't make us different at the end of the day. We're all sinners. And you know, one of the most common ways sin manifests itself in our lives, it manifests itself through selfishness. That's what it does. And I look at people sometimes and get bad attitude because I think you're being selfish, but I forget that I'm selfish too. And the only cure for that is to allow the Lord to transform our lives from the inside out. You know, that's, that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us to do, to change us from the inside out, to make our character different from the inside out. Because selfishness is a problem, that's not the way we're supposed to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul writes that great passage of Scripture about love and how important love is, he talks about what love is, what love is not, what love does, what love does not do. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, love is not self-seeking which means love is not selfish. It's not selfish. And so that's got to be our goal. The second thing we got to remember, I think if we're going to 
have any success in loving people is we gotta remember that love is not an emotion. It's hard for us to separate that truth out from reality in our American culture because we think about love as something that we feel, whether we, even if we intellectually know that's not the case, that's just where we go when it comes to love. But the kind of love that God wants us to have, the, the kind of love that's described in the Bible, if you're familiar with the Greek terms as agape love, is not characterized by an emotion or a feeling. Agape love is characterized by sacrifice. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross for all of us because we were lovable. He felt like we were all lovable. He came and died on the cross because it was a sacrificial act of love to give us an opportunity to have reconciliation with God. This is the example of love that we have from the Scriptures, and that's what we need to remember. So let's take this all the way back to Jonah. I mean, it's clear to me as I read this story that Jonah was a very selfish, self-centered, self-involved person. You see that in his unwillingness to go to Nineveh in the first place, his anger response when God chose to save Nineveh, and his continuing anger when this stupid vine died, and it upset him so much that he just wanted to die. When I think about that, I'm reminded that you and I will never be God's instruments to reach out to people who are lost, to people who are misguided, to people who are misinformed, to people who are underinformed, to people who are hurting. You can put any description you want in there. We'll never be God's instruments to reach out to those people if all we do is care about ourselves and our feelings. Because God loves everyone. God loves every sinner. Aren't you glad? Because that describes you and me. Right down next to number three, we'll bring this to a close. First thing was an objection. Second thing is an object lesson. When I got to this point in the service, I, may, I put down this point, an obvious question. Of all the dozens of times I have heard and read the story of Jonah, I don't think this question ever came to my mind before, but I, was, I felt myself left with the question, well, I wonder what happened to Jonah after this? Because I don't really know. I wonder what happened to Jonah after this, and that led to this question, and here's the obvious question that I'm thinking about. Do you think Jonah ever, ever really repented in this story? I mean, the story begins with God saying, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up against me. Jonah said, no thanks, and went the other way. That's obvious disobedience, right? Everyone say right. And we need to repent from disobedience. We know God intervened, and God intervened in a supernatural way, and we know that Jonah eventually went to the city of Jonah, or to the city of Nineveh, and he preached and did what God wanted to do, but then when God didn't destroy the people, he was all upset and angry. Now, that doesn't seem like a good attitude to me, do you? And so, did, did he really ever repent? I mean, if the story of Jonah ended in chapter 3, where once that fish vomited, there it is again, number 3, vomited, there's number 4, Jonah up on the shore, <laughs> and he got the call to go to Nineveh the second time, and he did it, then I might be tempted to say, yeah, Jonah repented, but the story of Jonah doesn't end in chapter 3, and then you get to chapter 4, and you see how, how crummy his attitude was, and how whiny he was, and so I'm left with a question. Did Jonah ever really repent? And here's my conclusion. I don't think that he did. But that leaves me with a troubling, troubling thought. At least 
when I first say it or think it, it seems troubling to me. It's possible to obey God sometimes and even be successful in doing it with a bad attitude. Do you believe that's true? You ever, you ever done anything for the Lord? You ever done any act of service for the Lord and if you were honest, you didn't have a 100% good attitude about doing it? You know how long it takes me to answer that question? As long as it takes me to raise my hand. I told the people in Saturday night church last night, I said, that's been the case here for me on Saturday night church. I've showed up to preach and I didn't want to be here because I, I sometimes have a temptation to have a love-hate attitude with Saturday night church. Well, you just think about what you, if you'd like it, if your life, if you never had Saturday off, you never had a free Saturday. And it used to be, you know, I mean, I'd be watching, you know, a ball game, my favorite team playing on television, I'd have to come to church because the game wasn't over. And back in the old days, when my son Andrew was still young and at home, these doors on the sides used to have clear glass, and he would stand in that doorway over there, and he'd either give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. <laughs> and boy, that would severely impact the conclusion of the message for Saturday night. It could go to great celebration to a long, weeping conclusion. <laughs> All that to say, you know, that when I get here, I love the people and I'm glad, but there were times when I was just like, oh, I got to go to church. <laughs> but how, but this, is the, this is the thing about our amazing God. Our amazing God can take our efforts, even when they don't come from a good attitude, and he can use them to do good things. And then he can change us on the way. You remember that story and Paul was in prison in Philippians chapter 1. Don't turn there. Paul was in prison in Philippians chapter 1 and, and he didn't know if he was going to live or die. Literally, he didn't know whether the next day was going to bring life or death. And that's when he said, you know, but for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But he reconciled that by saying, if I continue to live, I'm going to continue to serve Christ, represent Christ. But if I die, I'm going to be with Christ. So to live is Christ, to die is gain. But then he, before he said that, he was talking about the reality of his situation. Listen, I'm going to read from beginning in verse 12 of Philippians 1. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Listen to this now. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I was put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can, not sincerely, but supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And here's Paul's conclusion. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or pure, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice." Now, that's an amazing passage of Scripture, isn't it? Paul says the good news is while I'm in prison, most of my brothers are emboldened to preach the gospel more powerfully. Now, honestly, behind the scenes, some of them are doing it from pure motive and some are not. But at the end of the day, what matters most is that Christ is being preached. So I think one of the lessons from Jonah is that we can sometimes serve God with a pretty stinking attitude and God can still make something good come from it. And... He'll work to change that attitude. All right, I'm going to have Brian come out. We're going to bring this thing to a close. I'm going to give you three things that I want you to remember as we leave from this place. Oh, by the way, did Jonah ever really repent? I, I, I told you, I'm not so sure that he did. But one thing that, that kind of gives me a, a little bit of encouragement is, is this. How, how did we even get the story of Jonah? Who, who was the only person who could have written it down in complete detail, including all of the the bad attitudes and all of the, the negative parts? Well, the answer is Jonah. 
And the fact, the very fact that he took the time to write it down and expose the reality of his crummy attitude gives me a little bit of hope that maybe he did. All right, three things real quick. Write this down. We won't take any time with one of them. This is our takeaways. Number one, God loves Nineveh. God loves Nineveh. So the question is, where's your Nineveh today? Maybe who's your Nineveh today? Maybe your Nineveh is your next-door neighbor who doesn't take care of his yard, and you're trying to be yard of the month, and it just irritates the fire out of you every day. Your next-door neighbor who comes out, and he scalds down his yard as low as he can get it once every two weeks. Well, you got yard of the month, and you guys, you've got a neighbor like that, don't you? Maybe you are a neighbor like that, and we're going we're gonna to have a decision time here in just a few minutes. Maybe it's your grouchy old boss, you know, that you've got to deal with, and maybe, maybe it's so bad. I mean, you come to the weekend, and you love the weekend, and Monday morning, or even when you go to bed Sunday night, you start feeling that old feeling, the pit of your stomach, like, oh, I've got to deal with that guy again for another five days. Maybe it's a group of people that you're tempted to look at and say, God must hate those people. But you know what? God doesn't hate anybody. He might hate the things that we do, but God doesn't hate anybody, right? Everybody say, right. We got to understand this. But God loves Nineveh. Who's your Nineveh? The second thing I want you to write down is this. God is obviously willing to do whatever it takes to get you to Nineveh. How about that? I mean, what, would, what did it take to get Jonah to Nineveh? It took three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. God's willing to do whatever it takes to get you to your Nineveh. Let me ask you a question. You got somebody in your life that might fall into that category of your Nineveh, and for some reason, no matter how hard you try to avoid them, they keep turning up every time you turn around? Pick up the clue phone. God's going to do whatever he needs to do to get you to Nineveh, and we need to remember that. Here's the third thing I want you to write down. Nineveh needs you. And maybe that's the most important thing I've said all day. Nineveh needs you. You know, stop and think about what we know. The people of Nineveh were horrible. They were wicked. They were beyond description wicked. They weren't looking for God. But what do we learn from the story of Jonah? We learn that God was looking for them. They weren't searching for God. But what does the story of Jonah tell us? God was searching for them. So much so that all Jonah had to do was show up and open up his mouth and say eight words, 40 more days, and the city will be overturned. And that led to a citywide revival. We are so afraid to reach out to people and approach people and talk to people because we, we think that, that success or failure depends upon our own cleverness or our own personality or our own knowledge when God may very well have put that person in a place of preparation that all, and all they need is you to show up. Nineveh needs you. Nineveh needs me. You know, we say our mission statement here at Mount Pleasant is that we want to change the world. We're talking about changing the world for Christ. We want to change the world one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. I'm going to give you the same challenge I've given to everybody else. When you walk out the door today, I'm hoping and praying that there are dozens, if not more, of people. I don't care how old you are, men, women, young people, I don't care. I'm praying that there are dozens, maybe hundreds of people who will walk out the door and just have this conviction in their heart. I'm going to go out the door and I'm going to start looking for that one person, that one life. One life, one family, one opportunity at a time. I'm going to start looking for that one life. 
It may be somebody that I feel like I have anything in common with. It might be somebody that makes me want to go the other way when I see them walking down the street. But I'm going to look for that one life, that Nineveh, who needs somebody, who needs somebody to love them, who needs somebody to care about them, who needs somebody to, to put up with them long enough to speak love and truth, the love and truth of God into their life. So who will be that person that will walk out today and begin to look for that one life? Nineveh needs you and me. And grace wins every time. <laughs>